everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast based on writers sitting around drinking coffee or wine and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There will be rants and raves and opinions that do not agree, but are lovingly delivered. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your hosts today are Chaz and Karen Brenchley and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 139, interview with Emmy Nordstrom Higdon. Welcome, Emmy. Hi. Emmy is an agent with Westwood Creative Artists, and we ran into them online on Twitter. And I got to say, fascinating rants go on on Twitter. This is why I love so many <laughs> of my Twitter feeds. And we reached out and like, would you mind terribly coming on our show? Because I kind of want to hear some of the things that you've been ranting about in 130 characters, and I want so much more. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for having me. I always am super excited to get to talk about um, all the complexities of the publishing world. I'm a huge nerd, so there's lots to learn and lots to think about, I think. <laughs> well, you are a Canuck, although I guess they call it from Newfoundland. You're a Newfie. It's true. <laughs> and I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about you and how you got into where you are, because we have many people that listen that are wannabe writers or wannabe mm. in the book industry in one way or the other. And the, the path that everyone takes to get to their profession is fascinating. <laughs> I would say that mine is a little less conventional than others as well, so I'm always happy to talk about it. I guess, I mean, just like a lot of people in publishing or who are writers, I grew up as, you know, a gigantic book nerd. I spent a lot of lunchtimes in the library. Um, I always love to tell people that my grandmother was actually the volunteer librarian at my elementary school. So <laughs> I spent a lot of time hanging out there with her. Um, but as I got older, I actually pursued my education in social work um, after a brief foray into the world of circus arts, which people seem to love to hear about. Um, that's a whole other rabbit hole to go down. But um, I was in my PhD in social work at McMaster University in Hamilton, which is just outside of Toronto where I live now. Um, and I realized that the teaching track, the tenure teaching university life was probably not going to be my first choice of career as, you know, I was in my late 20s and I just wasn't kind of ready to enter a whole other level of competition in the academic world. Um, and I had been working for a few years part-time at an independent bookstore here in Toronto. It's called Another Story and they're a social justice focused indie. Um, and it was the job that like I had it was the happiest I had ever been in my life working, working at the bookstore. Um, but I don't know that people really give credit to bookstore, to booksellers enough for like how grueling retail work can be. Um, <laughs> I remember when I did my interview for the bookstore, they sort of warned me that, you know, there's a lot of heavy lifting and the manager who was interviewing me asked, you know, like how much I was comfortable lifting. And the employee who was there interviewing me with her kind of burst out laughing and was like, yeah, that's not even close to how much we lift every day, but good try. Like, <laughs> um books of picture boxes of picture books and graphic novels especially like any bookseller will tell you like they are heavy so um as a person who has like some physical limitations and things I was sort of thinking about okay this is like the happiest job I've ever had but it, I don't think it's sustainable for me as I get older because I was already sort of like mid-career and entering my 30s and so I was trying to think of something that would be kind of a lateral move um 
and that would use also like the research and academic publishing skills that I'd gotten through my um, social work education. So um, it was actually through a podcast that I listened to um, that was sort of about like a day in the life of an agent. Like, what does that work actually look like? And I thought to myself, like, wow, that's actually not that different from the things that I do now every day and have been doing for, you know, four or five years in my academic work. But it's an industry that's like a little bit closer to my heart and a little bit um, like just more, I think the speed that I'm ready to be moving at at this stage of my life. And so um, I was super, super lucky. There was an agency in Toronto called the Rights Factory who was looking for an intern um, when I was uh, in well, what I thought was the last year of my PhD, but you know, the pandemic happened, things change. Um, and so as I was finishing up that program, um, they were they gave me an internship, even though I had no experience in publishing. Um, they helped me out to do a couple of courses at the local university and the publishing aspects that I was like really unfamiliar with. Um, and about six or seven months later, I was hired by Westwood where I work now. Um, and it's just been like a dream being at Westwood. It was an offer I really couldn't turn down. My mentors are some of the best agents in the country and I admire them so much. They do such amazing work. So it's been, yeah, a really, really lovely kind of charmed path so far. <laughs> Something you said struck me so much in the, you know, everyone everyone has this image of of that cute little booksellers. Maybe we got a little bit from Good <laughs> Omens, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, but the paper, do you remember in, I don't know if anybody here watched Sharp's Rifles or read the Bernard Cornwell sit, there was actually a plot where somebody realized, right, they are lying to you. They are saying that box <laughs> is full of papers. They lift it like it was light as a favor. You know, it's, it's a feather. Yeah. Papers are heavy. <laughs> so heavy. And that's actually like, it's such a great tie-in because I know that we're going to talk about supply chain later. And paper is such a big part of books that nobody really thinks about. But yeah, especially you'll learn really quick as a bookseller what the difference is between a box of 20 hardcovers and a box of 20 paperbacks, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the, the paper part. You know, cardboard is lighter than paper, really. Exactly. In, in perspective, cardboard has all that oxygen in it. And glossy paper, like graphic mm. novels, that is the oh. worst. Like, oh. I love graphic novels with all of my heart. I would never. And, you know, they're some of the best books to have in physical copy, too, because of the colors and the visuals. But, man, they are hard to move around. <laughs> I, I hear you. And this is this is all going to be very keen to me because I'm the lead writer on Double Critical. And we are about to release our two-volume 5e Adventures in Oz. And that is roughly 600 glossy, 600 glossy <laughs> pages in our book. Everybody better start lifting weights now. <laughs> it's, it's already the working out. Plus, we had there was a warehouse that burned down recently. Oh so, no! So, so when you said supply chain, I want to say, "Wow, you are singing my song, lady." So, mm -hmm. um, please tell us a little bit about. I mean, we have never really talked a great deal about the supply chain end to end. Would you care to illustrate it for the listeners on? When you say, when publishing talks about supply chain end-to-end, -end, what are the pieces? Can you unravel that for the listeners? Oh, I would love to. <laughs> I'm such, I don't know if the average person sits around and thinks about the supply chain all day long, but I really do. I don't know what it is about it. I, that I think is just, more people do now because of COVID, yeah. because of that ship in the Suez Canal. You know, there's a, there's a lot of things that supply chains are now they're thinking about and where's all my toilet paper? Yeah, absolutely. And it's all so interconnected, you know, like the question of like, where are my books and where is my toilet paper is actually like a lot of the answers to those yeah. questions are exactly the same. Um, and it all goes back to 
I mean, so like materially, it all goes back to wood pulp, right? Like that's where all of these products come from, whether you're looking at like a box of toilet paper in the store or whether you're looking at like a beautiful hardcover book, like they're all made from the same base material. And so that's something that I think a lot of people didn't really think about before COVID and before like sort of shorter term problems had such a huge impact on our supply chain, because I'm not really sure that we've experienced supply chain issues in exactly the way that we are now before. And part of that is only- I think it's important to realize that Dostoevsky and Charmin have the same source. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) If nothing's humbling to you, let that be humbling to you today, right? (laughs) But yeah, the modern supply chain as it exists today has only really existed since like the 1950s or so. And so these problems are all actually very, very new. Like, even though that might sound like a long time ago to some people, I mean, prior to the 1950s, 1940s, we were really shipping everything across the Pacific Ocean, across like all of the oceans, I guess, in boats, but like loose in boats, which is something that people can't really envision today. It took a ton of person power. You know what I mean? Like you're talking like literal ships with like a whole hull full of flour. It wasn't shipped, nothing was shipped in boxes like it is now. And so that whole revolution came actually out of the Vietnam War. And we're now seeing sort of the weaknesses of that system, like in a really compounding way for in I think a way that we haven't, I think I feel safe saying that like we haven't really seen it kind of pile up like this in the history of kind of container shipping, which is the beating heart of um, the supply chain today. We live not very far from the port of Oakland. Yeah. An awful lot of um, things come through and they're having a huge supply chain issue. And one of the problems they had was they got the boxes off and then they just left the ships sitting there in the, in the, harbor and no one would move the ships so yeah part of the problem i I mean oakland is so fascinating because it is one of the original like big ports in the u.s and it really services all of north america i mean even though it like it might be an american port a lot of canadian products a lot of even south american products like do flow through the oakland port because so much of what arrives in oakland is manufactured in asia right so Uh since container shipping has become so efficient and so affordable for people in North America, especially um, manufacturing has really shifted. And I mean, especially how can we, how, how do, how could people not know this after the Trump years and all of his complaining, but, you know, manufacturing has really shifted out of North America and into Asia in a huge way over the last like 50 and a hundred years. So it's been, you know, like all of the products that are manufactured in Asia, chances are they're coming through a port on the West Coast, no matter where you live in North America. And so Oakland is one of the biggest and busiest ports even today. And it has been historically since kind of the advent of of global container shipping. So you get to see everything like up close and personal, (laughs) which the joke in my house right now is that like, if we can't find something like anything from like a sock that's lost to, you know, like an item at a store that we've been looking for. The joke is like, oh, it's definitely on a boat outside of LA right now. Yeah. <laughs> like That's really become like the issue. And you're right. Part of the problem is that nobody is taking responsibility for the cost of returning boats to Asia. Um, and that's a really huge problem. And it's especially a huge problem for the crews of these ships, which are often like 30 people max. They're actually not a huge number of folks that are on the boats themselves, um, despite the fact that they carry like, you know, millions of tons of um, like super important and valuable cargo. It doesn't take that many people to actually 
you know, like captain and drive the ship. And so for those small crews um, that are mostly comprised of like Filipino workers, the management and captains tend to be more like Eastern European. So it's like really a cultural mix, but it's a lot of um, migrant labor. And they're essentially trapped on those boats until somebody pays for them to go home, which is like there are whole crews sitting outside of Oakland right now, not just the boats. So it's a big problem. And there's, I, I mean, I love Oakland driving by it. It makes you feel like you're in Star Wars with all the adats lined up, you know. <laughs> down the, all the Absolutely. But there was, there was a different challenge. Uh, we get a lot of the trees, interestingly, get cut mm-hmm. out of everything from British Columbia to Northern California, which then get taken down and shipped over to China, where they do a lot of the processing. I mean, there's some sawmills here, of course. And and some mm-hmm. of the challenge in all of this is for the toilet paper and the building supplies and all of the other things having to do with trees, is the sawmills somehow didn't think that people would really, really need them. And so some of them voluntarily shut down early. Yeah. So interestingly, like 2020 has been a weird year, was a weird year. I I say that like we're still in 2020. Wow. Let's be glad that we've moved on from that. Um, I think we are still in 2020. (laughs) Mentally, I'm still there, you know. Um, But yeah, 2020 was a weird year for sawmills. So like like you said, we actually ship a lot of our natural resources in North America over to Asia to be processed because it's much cheaper to process things there. Um, but there is an ongoing tension, and I mean it rightfully so, between sort of like global manufacturing and environmental interests too. Climate change plays a huge role in this. So not only have, you know, like the natural resources themselves, like the trees, been impacted, but also activism around environmental interests has been obviously huge, like for a long time. Um, and there are countries, and I would say almost all countries, are making strides toward being more climate friendly. But some of the consequences that we see are are things like the sawmill shutdown in China that happened in 2019. So there was actually an environmental ordinance passed there right before COVID hit. Um, and it probably didn't make the news because it was kind of right around the time that COVID was starting. So I think people were preoccupied. <laughs> but um, the the environmental ordinances that were passed there actually shut down more than 200 sawmills in China. So although we were shipping the raw material there to be processed, all of a sudden, not only was China hit with the pandemic, but also new environmental regulations meant that a lot of the factories just closed. And so the amount of wood pulp that was being produced was suddenly much lower. They also ended up um, like as a safety precaution, hugely cutting their workforce in the factories, like early on in the pandemic. Um, and that was like a safety precaution that was pretty unavoidable. But when you couple that with the amount of wood pulp that was then redirected, for example, from high quality paper processing or uh, production rather, into making things like more toilet paper, into making things like uh, cardboard box production shot through the roof in 2020, as you might imagine, because of all of the things that all of a sudden people didn't want to go out and buy, they wanted them delivered. And so a lot of the like the raw resources of the wood pulp that's produced by the sawmills was actually redirected to these like kind of more pragmatic purposes. And there are certain types of paper that pre-2020 were easy to find. They were expensive, but like they existed. Um, And as long as you booked at the, you know, the printing presses early, you could kind of have your selection of the papers because of the number of sawmills that shut down. There are actually certain kinds of paper that went completely out of production entirely. And that's been a huge problem, like not only for regular book publishing, but especially for people who are printing four color books. So like full 
uh, full color illustrations, full color photos, like shiny, nice, high quality paper. Some of those papers actually aren't being produced on earth anymore. And so that's a huge challenge and one that I, I would say that we haven't really faced as an industry uh, head on before. Well, we can also back up when we say all of those ships aren't really leaving. There was, I think, was it, I don't remember 17 or 18, 2018, mm-hmm. somewhere in there, China said, we don't want all your garbage anymore because many people don't yep. know how much garbage we used to send to China, like 7 million tons of plastic trash alone we sent to China. Absolutely. And China started to say, wait a second, we have a garbage problem on our side, so we don't want your garbage anymore. So what do we fill Mm. those ships up to make it economically feasible to travel back? Exactly. So what used to happen, and I think people in Toronto tend to be more aware of this, I found out, than people in the rest of the world, because in Toronto, we don't have enough space to store our like recycling or our waste. And so we actually truck I I only learned this like in the last couple of years, but in Toronto, we actually pack up all of our waste materials and they get trucked to landfills in Michigan. And we pay obviously like a huge amount of money in Toronto and in taxes and duties and all of those kinds of, you know, like border crossing fees to dump all of our waste where there's more land and it's less valuable in Michigan. But essentially that's like a microcosm for what happens in all of North America, right? Like we actually don't, despite the amount of space that we have, um, like in terms of land, it's not necessarily something that we want to deal with locally. And it's not something we really have the facilities to deal with locally. So a lot of stuff that's landfilled here gets shipped to Asia to be dealt with. And normally what happens is that, so a container ship, we, you know, a company or consumers will pay to have like a whole container ship full of products brought from Asia. Great. That's awesome. And then China actually used to purchase our recycling from us so that they could take it like use those container ships, take it back from North America over to Asia, it would be processed in their recycling plants. And then that's actually where a large amount of our recycled paper came from. But as you said, Asia is producing its own waste now. Like (laughs) it wasn't a long time ago because North America used to be like the biggest waste producers in the world, but like, you know, population growth, industry growth, like China has its own garbage. (laughs) So it doesn't want to, China doesn't want our garbage anymore. (laughs) They're sick of us like using that as like a cheap way of dealing with our local problems. And so um, not only has there been a dip in recycling, but there's also been a dip in like the interest in processing foreign recyclables overseas. And so, yeah, there. not only does that mean that it's harder for us to know what to do with the ships once they get here, but it's also hard because it, it means that they're domestically producing some paper, but not as much as they used to because they're not dealing with our waste paper anymore. So it's like, it's a double whammy for us in terms of the supply chain because it's fewer raw materials. And it's, it also means there's all these boats hanging out in California being like, but <laughs> now what? So, so as an agent, though, yeah. so here we kind of bring in spec. So as an agent, and you're you're an agent to make more books. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so um, this kind of you know being aware of all of this. Do you when when you agent something, are you actually agent agenting to make you know to sell a book, a bestseller? Are you steering people toward online books? I mean, what how do what is your what is your process if I came to you and said, I have this great book and you think, oh, that would be a bestseller. I mean, how, yeah. do you, how do you go about, you know, how do you go about making my fantastic book? Don't worry, I haven't written a book. Um, I've been to a fantastic bestseller. Yeah, I mean, it's so complicated, right? I think that, so I'm of two minds. And I think that part of it is because of my agency, um, because one of the things that happens 
in my life a lot is that I'm sort of like caught, but I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm sort of like balanced between two worlds in publishing. So Westwood has an incredible reputation with like literary fiction and especially like 2030, we have, the agency has been around for over 30 years. So especially like 20 years ago, we were like the leading agency for best-selling literary fiction in Canada. Um, and like, it's a really rich tradition and it's a really rich history. And a lot of our, I think, approaches and practices reflect that. And that's a lot of what I'm like steeped in as I'm learning how to be, you know, the best agent I can be. But of course, like a lot of change, a lot has changed in publishing in 20 years, right? Like social media, like you mentioned, even formats of books, like things like eBooks and audiobooks, um, are really changing the way that the publishing market works. And now of course, like the last couple of years in the pandemic and with these supply chain issues that like, I I personally think they're going to get worse before they get better. And what that means is that books are going to get more expensive ultimately, um, physical books and harder to get. There's a lot to think about, right? When we think about like, what does the future look like? And I always joke that like being an agent is really more about living in the future than it is about living in the present moment in some ways, because when, so for example, I have a book that I'm super proud of that's coming out this month, Tripping Arcadia. Uh, It's by one of my amazing authors, Kit Mayquist. He was one of the first authors I signed when I was an agent. And ironically, it's like almost two years ago to the day that um, I met him today. And so we met over Twitter. He had an amazing book, but we spent, you know, two years like working on it, selling it, and then the publication date. And that's like a pretty normal timeline. So when I'm thinking about myself two years ago, like, did I know where Kit and I would be in the world (laughs) like two years down the road? Not really, but like, you really have to kind of guess. And so whenever I'm looking at a book, yeah, like even if I you know, I'm reading it today and I'm like, this would be a bestseller today. Like the real question is, can it be a bestseller like three, four years from now? You know, it's a tricky thing. And something I think about all the time is, yeah, does something have the potential to be a bestseller in paperback? You better believe I cried when the hardcovers of Tripping Arcadia arrived. You know what I mean? I was bawling. They're beautiful. Um, And it's such a cool thing, like for any reader, I think to like hold one of these like precious objects in your hands, you know, it's like a big deal. But the truth is like the future of publishing is probably going to lie more in those electronic formats. So whether it's in eBooks, whether it's in audiobooks, and my agency does a lot with multimedia rights too, and adaptations. And we talk a lot about sort of where, especially the audio market is going like with this new climate where there's a lot of overlap between podcasting and audiobooks too. So there's just a lot of considerations when you're thinking about a book these days and what might be possible and what might be doable like three, four years from now. I think it's really difficult to predict and it's really difficult to be both, you know, like optimistic and hopeful and also be realistic um, about your expectations. I have a, I have a question that may not have an easy answer but it's a as a consumer of books as well. Yeah, I I mean I I forgive the authors that I've read the first six in the series and the seven one comes out now. I buy everything electronically because I after LASIK I have to use reading glasses. Mm-hmm. Some days I really like being able to change the font size, and I can't yes, do that on so print. Good. So. I am. I have. I have reached that point of because it's like I. It's bad light. It's this and it's that. I need to change the font sizes. Mm-hmm. On book eight, suddenly it's like I understand it's been successful. People want the latest. It's coming out. They make it a little bit higher. I was trying to figure out why once staring at Amazon. 
the ebook version of something was $12.99, but if I wanted to get a physical book that to me, I think of a supply chain and somebody had to carry that, somebody had to print it, somebody had to do this mm-hmm. stuff, it was five bucks cheaper. How does that happen? So there are a lot of reasons why that happens, but one of them has to do with the distribution model for eBooks. And a lot of that, I mean, I hate to be like this stereotypical, but a lot of it comes back to Amazon. Um, No, no, that's fine. We can slide Jeff Bezos. (laughs) I mean, listen, it's not everything is his fault, but a lot of things are his fault. So (laughs) here we are. But yeah, like, so the tricky thing with eBooks is that it does actually still take a huge number of people to produce them, right? Like until the point that it's physically printed, a print book is being produced as a print book. And so like there's a whole team of people who are designing and working with that print book to make it as beautiful as it can be. In the same way, there's somebody on the other side who's adapting all of that design to digital. And sometimes that's really, really tricky because, you know, like if say the print copy has like a gorgeous, like, you know how sometimes at the beginning of a chapter, there'll be like a beautiful like border or like an image that goes along with that chapter. Well, the beauty of the accessible formats, the ebook formats is that you know, you can change the size, you can often change the color, you can change the orientation of that page. That's not something that you have to contend with with a print book, right? So all of those images, all of the graphics, all of the text has to be optimized to be able to work within all of these different formats. And because people read them on everything from like an iPhone to like a $500 Kindle, like there's a lot of thought that goes into that. There's a lot of work that goes into that and it's expensive to do you know like you have to host the books you have to there's a whole like back-end digital infrastructure that ebooks depend on but aside from that the other thing is that a lot of books now are sold um like it when we're talking about ebooks at least based on subscription models and so it's really really tricky when you get into things like kindle unlimited or especially in europe the subscription models for ebooks are much more popular than they are here and so the cost to the end user of each unit is much, much less. And because print books, until 2020, the sale of print books was going way down. Thankfully, it's starting to climb back up again. But of course, with the supply chain issues, that's like a double-edged sword. But ebooks have been getting more and more popular steadily over time for all the reasons that you mentioned. And also just because like, you know, for people like me, for example, I live in a 450 square foot house. If I had every physical book in this house that I owned digitally, like nobody would be able to breathe. (laughs) So it they're really like they're they appeal to I think especially like millennials Gen Xers who are like coming into their own or Gen Zs who are coming into their own spaces. Um, they appeal in a lot of different ways, and so their sales have been going up. But it does mean that the amount of work that gets put into an ebook and the amount of money that people are willing to pay for that object that you can't share, that you can't hold, you know, and sometimes. If, if you're a library user too, your time with it is limited. So the sort of like the cost risk doesn't balance out yet for eBooks. And that's really challenging for people. And and I wanted to throw in there when you were talking about the extra work for e-format, that is not, I mean, I, I work in IT security. That is mm-hmm. not any anything that makes a website changing sites or changing browsers yeah. or changing formats. All of those things do matter. And I do get a little grumpy with the <laughs> exactly, and maybe it's some of it self-publishing, and I admire self-publishers very much. I absolutely mm-hmm. do, but when I change the size or try to go back and forth, if it doesn't work well, 
That's that's work that a professional publishing agency could have maybe helped you with. They, exactly. I presume yeah. you have people that are specialists in that. That's it. Yeah. I mean, the publishers definitely who are doing ebooks well and who sell a lot of ebooks, like they pay big money for people to come from the tech industry into publishing to be able to do that design work because it's it's just not a problem that you encounter with a paper book that like you pick up your I read on a Kobo. Like if I pick up my Kobo and my book breaks, like that's a problem, you know. Um, and it's not one that you want people to have. You want people to be able to sit down and enjoy them the same way that you would with any other format. So yeah, it's a lot of work. And it's also because the skills are so specialized and the industries are so competitive with their salaries, publishing is not a high paying place to be. So those the people with those kinds of skills are really, really valued in publishing. But it does mean that, you know, the cost of producing a book is very different than it used to be when you were only producing, you know, a mass market paperback, for example. But this still lets, you know, I, I'm just pointing out, this is yet another career path. We have, first of 100%. all, to drive, yeah. to, to drive a container ship, you make somewhere between 86 and 120, depending on, you know, what state mm-hmm. you live in. But if you say, I really love books and I want to be part of the industry, but I'm a graphic artist or I'm a, I'm a tech person. I really just love making websites, et cetera. Oh, there is so much space for you. (laughs) There really, really is. (laughs) We can do another episode sometime where we talk about NFTs and how that's like trickling into publishing slowly. Like, I think that there's a huge issue in publishing that we don't necessarily value, like, because it's seen as kind of anathema to the industry. I think traditionally, like we don't necessarily value people who have a high level of really technical knowledge in publishing in the ways that um, we need to for this like very rapidly changing world that we have. I don't know. I really think NFTs are like Mary Kay for young men. Oh my gosh, it's horrible. I had someone describe them, Nico Stratus, who's a, a local uh, journalist, she described them to me recently as, um, do you remember Pogs from the 90s, those little I discs? Do you remember Pogs? Yeah. And sometimes like the little disc would be worth like 20 cents and sometimes people would buy them for like $7. And she said NFTs are basically Pogs that haven't been printed yet. They're just the little disc and you don't know what it's worth. <laughs> yeah. It's just sitting out there in the ether somewhere. And I was like, that's a great description. <laughs> Like, this is an amazing multi level marketing scheme. I'm going to hold this truly. Would you like to buy my pog? How much exactly for it? So, yep. But we have already, I can speak at least from an agent's perspective, we've already seen one contract come through uh, our agency from a big five publisher that had an NFT clause in it. So, these days, these things are coming. (laughs) People really need to be educated about them, and it's not an easy thing to understand. So, having people on your team and around you that understand the technology that is so essential to the success in publishing these days, no matter what, like whether you're a self-publisher or like all the way up to a big five publisher, I think it's important. Yeah, I agree. I think we do need to have an an NFT um, podcast because I think that I I, I am, I know I'm in the tech industry and I have a Mm -hmm. vague idea what they are, but beyond like, I'm kind of like, so what? But then I was never a pog fan either. So (laughs) they're also like, just really complicated. I don't think there's any like super easy explanation for them. And I think that, you know, up until now, people have been able to just sort of be like, oh, that's not the most relevant thing. But I think that the time is coming when they will be very relevant, unfortunately, for all of us, perhaps. Emmy, what advice would you give to somebody who wants to Considering publishing in all of the world with this and that and the other, I mean, we've now said, gosh, it's hard to get that book in your hands and there's a supply chain problem, etc. What advice would you give to a author who wants to go publishing and is debating traditional route versus self-publishing, etc.? Do you have any wise words for them? I mean, I, I always tell people... 
I mean, I consider myself a reader first. And before I was an agent, especially working at the bookstore, I used to read. I mean, I still try to, um, although my work sometimes demands that I not. But um, I used to read like the gambit of books, you know what I mean, from like local authors who were self-publishing, like all the way up to, you know, like the big huge bestsellers um, and kind of everything in between. And I think that it has to be a choice of the author based on like their individual goals and interests and also like how they see their book fitting into the market. I think that a lot of times like authors will, I get a lot of queries at least that are books that like I would love to see on shelves. But when I look around and I look at like what the comps might be, what is selling these days, what publishers are investing in, like the bar is super, super high. You know what I mean? You have to kind of be able to envision a title selling like not hundreds of copies, but like literal thousands of copies in order to be successful in trade publishing. And that's not going to be every book. And it also shouldn't be, you know, there are books that are like beautiful, perfect gems that just like there's just not thousands of people who might want to read that book. And that's probably fine. You can have a really successful, happy career as an author selling to like your 500 or 600 fans and still be creating beautiful, meaningful work and changing the way that people think, you know? And so for me, I think that like there are books that do great in self-publishing, especially if authors are super keen on managing like every detail of their career on their own. It's a ton of work, but some people like that's what they want. They want to be able to create all the ads. They want to be able to like control the message about their book. They want to be able to host it on the sites that they feel good about hosting it in. And that's great, but that's not something you can negotiate into a Penguin Random House contract. You know what I mean? I do. <laughs> so, and, and, and on that note, do you want to plug anything about books beyond binaries? Blog? Well, I'm on hiatus right now, but I do have like a huge backlog of posts. So yeah, I think um, it's, it's a project that I love. It's my book blog that I started like way back before I was an agent. Um, mostly... I and my like little team of ambitious little writers review and recommend um, mostly LGBTQ books, mostly things that are like a little bit spooky, but not necessarily, um, but just things that I like really love mostly. And I think we've also done a good job of creating some resources on there for people who are interested in learning about um, particularly like trans and gender based topics, but also I'm really proud of some of our lists of like picture books that are for gender non-conforming kids and things like that. So it's it's a project I'm super, super proud of and I can't wait to get back to, but this year has just been so bonkers that we're taking a little break for a little while, um, but we'll be back. And there's lots to read in the meantime for people who haven't checked it out before. We will put links to stories and the publishing sites of Emmy Nordstrom Higdon on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter too. We love email. Emmy, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. And honestly, if anybody is as big a nerd about shipping supply chain and shipping issues as I am, they should check out the book 90% of Everything, which is available at a lot of public libraries. I checked it out and it's available here. So it's probably available at libraries near other people too. And it's a great summary of like where the shipping industry has come from and where it's going in the future. Well, I always think it, politically there's people who tried to say we are an island of America. We don't need all those other countries. And the answer is you desperately, desperately do, you fool. Yep. <laughs> you will definitely find that out sooner rather than later if you haven't already. <laughs> we really appreciate you. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's so such a pleasure. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. 
Our intro music is Pretty Maid Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsor is always Jackal Designs. Jazz does great t-shirts available on our website and coincidentally can design your hockey gear or coffee mug too. And hey, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.